Hello, I'm Mike Sugarman, broadcast journalist for 50 years, now paralyzed following a mishap after a second operation to repair my bulging aorta. And I'm Janice Wright, Mike's wife and now caregiver. Things have certainly changed for both of us. I'm in a wheelchair, and Janice... I am so furious! ...has gone from a mellow California girl... That nobody told us when you have a spinal cord injury in New York City... What in the hell is wrong with them? ...to a loud New York don't-mess-with-me lady. Clueless! How does that happen? Well... I really didn't have any choice in the matter about changing. Spinal cord injuries and all they come with for the person with it and the person taking care of them, that life is not for sissies. You gotta be tough, you gotta advocate for yourself every step of the way, or roll of the way. And being in a wheelchair, there are plenty of resources and groups to help. Not many for caregivers though, except what these ladies started. I am Elena Pauly. I am Brooke Paget. They live in Vancouver, and they run an organization called... Wags of SCI is the name of the group, and that is an acronym for Wives and Girlfriends of Spinal Cord Injury. Wags of SCI has been a place where caregivers can trade techniques of caring to vent, complain about the bad times, share happy times, too. There's a Facebook page for women only, there's a podcast and an Instagram page as well. And Janice has become one of the thousands of WAGs of SCI from around the world. I am proudly a WAG. And I have to tell you, ladies, you are like rock stars in the WAG community. So I want to thank you. And I want to ask you, how did you get started? So we actually met on Instagram of all places. Um, <laughs> we met on Instagram. Uh, my mom had found Elena randomly on her search feed and she had started following Elena and she sent me one of Elena's photos and she said, Hey, this girl looks like she lives in BC. She wasn't sure where she lived, which, uh, British Columbia is where we live in Canada. And she was like, you might want to look into it. And so I followed Elena and I followed her for a couple weeks before I messaged her and I direct messaged her and I said, you know, Hey, my name's Brooke. It looks like we're similar age. It looks like our partners are similar, similar injury levels. Do you want to connect? And, um, it kind of just took off from there. We realized that we live just blocks away from each other in a suburb of Vancouver called Kitsilano. And so we decided to meet up and the four of us met up one night and we had a great time. We had a blast. And from there, we started meeting up in the mornings, you know, for yoga or coffee or tea. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, that, you know, as Wags of SCI, we don't have the same schedules as most people, at least Elena and I didn't at the time where caregivers to quadriplegics. And so when we had some time off, we would meet up with each other and we would share stories. And even if it was just half an hour of a little bit of a break, Keep in mind, this was years and years ago. This was in 2016, late 2016, early 2017. And so we were able to find that community with each other because during rehabilitation, it's not really the time to make friends with a lot of people. Everyone's kind of struggling to stay alive pretty much. So we weren't able to connect with any younger women in our community, let alone really any at all. So after a little while of meeting up, we decided, you know, this is great. We should try and see if there's anyone else out there. 
And so we reached out locally to some uh, local rehab hospitals, put up some posters. Elena got her work to sponsor an evening of appetizers and a couple of drinks. And we met up with, I think our first meetup was six ladies. And so we kind of started that way. You know, we always like to talk about how we started very, very grassroots, very like feet on the ground, hammering posters up around the community, trying to find other women. And during that time, we also started an Instagram page called Wags of SCI. And it just kind of grew from there. And Elena, maybe you can take this one. Are there issues with other Wags that come up time and time again? Um, yeah, this is a great question. Brooke and I did a podcast episode on this this morning. And one of the biggest things that I would say that comes up in our community and especially between friends and family members um, is the issue of accessibility. You know, one of the biggest things, the most kind of in your face situations that we would always um, come across are when friends and family would invite us out for dinner or to an event after our partner's spinal cord injuries. And a lot of the time we would show up with our partners and either there were a couple of steps into a restaurant or their doorways weren't wide enough or sitting at a table and the foot plate would hit the bottom of the tables and our partners could not get underneath the table close enough to be able to enjoy a meal with, with us. And this is something that is still huge in our community. And, you know, especially when your partner first, um, undergo undergoes a spinal cord injury, it's being able to fit into your friends and family's homes. Are they accessible? Can you use a restroom in privacy with, is there enough space for you to get close enough? So you can close the door behind you so you can use a urinal. So these are, you know, it kind of sounds like a no brainer to us wags because we, we have, we're doing this, we get it, but this is a lot of, there's a lot of space for advocacy around accessibility. And I think that is one of the biggest situations that we will forever, you know, come across, including taking a flight. A lot of planes are not accessible and you have to use an aisle chair to get down the aisles and you have to be transferred. And I mean, there's a lot of lack of independence, especially for somebody who's a paraplegic and has the upper upper body to transfer themselves. There's just not enough space. And uh, even leaving your wheelchair on a flight, how do you know that it's going to come out at the other end at your destination still intact without things missing or things bent on your chair? And so I, I would say at the, at the very sort of, like I said, in your, in your face sort of situations, that is the biggest thing and um, something that we strive for. And, you know, the, the second piece to this will be, of course, the unpaid spousal caregiver. That's a lot of advocacy that we do run in our group for um, the, the truth of the matter is the healthcare system is not set up to provide in-home care to your partner for the hours that they need that is covered by the government. It's just not that way. And unfortunately, when you're, when your spouse sustains a spinal cord injury, um, you are friends and family, or I would say the spouse is the one left behind taking care of everything. And, you know, um, I don't know. It's sort of, I got a bit of a, a pit in my gut talking about this because this is something that we went through this weekend as well, where it's, how many times does home care not show up? And then you re rearrange your life and your work schedule and everything to help your partner do the bowel program or shower or get dressed or 
reach the things they need so they can cook themselves an adequate meal for breakfast or is there enough accessibility in your own home that they can do things independently? So I would say those are the two big key sort of like quality of life pieces right off the bat. Um, but there, there's a heap more, as you know. You know, it's funny you mentioned footrests. I was in a restaurant just yesterday and I kept bumping into people with my metal footrests. We couldn't really fit around the table. It was a, it was really hard. And that's just a little thing. Right. It's a little thing, but it's actually a really big thing. It's a little thing in terms of, it should be a very little and simple thing that every single restaurant should take into consideration. There is really, what's the deal with having these fancy tables? What happened to the four legs of a table where there's enough space for somebody to just roll right under? You know, with modern design, especially, you would think that we would get more accessibility around that, not <laughs> not all of these fancy pieces of equipment that don't necessarily work for everybody, right? And the biggest piece here is that if we made this world accessible, every single person would be able to use it. Well, what happened to your guys? How did they become SCI survivors? My partner was, we had been dating for about four years and he was, he had a great job. He was a construction site superintendent. He was 24. He was the youngest super in his company. He was doing really, really well. And he was working one day in his office and one of his site guys called him and said, there is a load that came in from the East coast. We need to inspect it. I can't get there right away. Can you get someone else to do it? And so being the go-getter that he is, he just was like, you know what, I'll just go inspect it. So it was kind of the wrong place at the wrong time, but it was also very faded in a way. I like to think of it that way. Um, he walked up to the trucks, took some pictures, realized that the truck was loaded improperly. And so just as he was taking some photos of the load, because the work safe procedure is to send it back to get it reloaded. It's that serious when things are loaded improperly. And so he had emailed his other superintendent on the site, a picture of it, and he was going to send it back. And before he could get off the truck, it fell over. Um, and it was actually, the load was actually gym flooring. He was building a school with his company and it fell right on his head. It splintered his hard hat into like a thousand pieces. Oh my God. And yeah, it was a freak accident, but uh, he knew it was unsafe and he was literally going to send it back. He turned around and it fell. And so um, luckily when he had started out his career, he had paramedic level first aid. He was a site safety officer. And so he was able to re retain consciousness long enough to walk some of his guys through putting him into C-spine to secure his neck because he knew he was paralyzed right away. He knew right and away. He knew right away. He stopped feeling, he, he couldn't feel anything below his shoulders. He knew right away he couldn't move. And so he walked them through securing his neck, calling the paramedics. Cause none of the, everyone was freaking out. They didn't really know what to do. And then he kind of passed out and yeah, that, that is what happened. And Elena. Um, so just a couple years after in 2016, so this is two years, I think about two years after Brooks, uh, husband sustained a spinal cord injury in 2016. Um, I, Dan and I lived in a small town, a very farm forward thinking town, I want to say. So um, 
I decided we, you know, my partner was a homeowner at the age of 21. He was a really hardworking guy. He was a stonemason. He only had the one job his entire life for the same company, his entire life since he was 17. And every year after we met, I had always, we've sort of talked about going away on vacation, but we could never really afford it because life and bills and trying to be responsible. <laughs> so in 2016, I had purchased him a vacation to Cuba, Cayo Santa Maria. And um, it takes about, I think it's a 50 kilometer causeway to get to Cayo Santa Maria from the major part of Cuba, the more common part of Cuba. And on January 2nd, he dove into the shallow end of the pool at a resort and sustained a spinal cord injury. We were sort of just following the resort, you know, the entertainment that gets you dancing and, and they were diving into the pool. And I went to the bathroom for I, what I thought was a split second. And I came back to see a group of people gathered around the pool and it was just about to get dark. We were going to have a quick dip and go meet our friends in the main part of Cuba away from the resort to go for a really lovely dinner. And I gather and I sort of followed the crowd around the pool and I was looking, wanting to ask Dan what happened. And then as the closer that I got to the pool, I saw that it was him floating in the pool. So what oh, had happened? Yeah. So what had happened was he uh, hit his head. He was following the entertainment. The entertainment all ran off dispersed immediately it was like everybody was gone so I jumped in the pool and it was sort of funny because because the day before we were watching um episodes of house in Spanish in our room and you know I, I don't know if you're familiar with house but there he's a doctor and there's always these freak accidents and they he sort of tells everybody what to do at the scene of the crime and hey, he's got a cane he's got some injuries too that's right. Right. So then I jumped in the pool when I saw Dan and I jumped in and I started to grab his legs and arms. And I said, can you feel this? And I started running my nails down his arms and hands. And he reported that he could, he could feel everything. He just couldn't move anything. So during the time that I went to the restroom, he hit his head and he began to drown and somebody lifted him off of the bottom of the pool. Yeah. I was going to say he's lucky he didn't drown. That's right. And that is one of the main things that happens to a lot of, you know, a, a, a swimming pool injury is not that uncommon in the spinal cord injury community. Um, so we, we did stay in Cuba. He did have his operation in Cuba. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Cuba, but it is a socialist country. That means that their medical equipment is, is quite outdated. So the hardware that is in his neck right now was made up by the surgeon there. There is no serial number on it, as there would be in North America had this happened. I wanted to talk to you ladies because I quote WAGs every day to Mike. Yeah, usually when I wake up and I'm still sleeping, not ready to hear this stuff. <laughs> I, know, I know, I'm sorry, but I just get so excited. And what has struck me is how many young couples there are struggling. And Mike and I have been together for 40 years, so, but so many of these couples are just starting their lives together. And then everything is thrown topsy-turvy. And it's hard enough to be a young couple to figure out what your duties are, your roles, who has the power. But it's different for us older couples. We have other issues, like we're getting older. But for younger couples, it's really different. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, 
we were really surprised that there were that many young couples out there like us. I think that was one of the most shocking things is I'll never forget. We had 300 followers on our Instagram and we were just like blown away. We were, we were like, Oh my God, like, look at all these young couples. Like most of them were below the age of 30. We were shocked. Um, Instagram is definitely a younger demographic, but it was still shocking. We had no clue. And so it's really opened our eyes of the struggles that young people face, especially like, you know, a lot of the couples that this happened to, they're just starting their lives together or they recently started their life together and they have these ideas of how their life should go. You know, we want to get married, have a family, secure our future, own a home, you know, really take some time to build our roots. And then when this happens, everything goes out the window. But the one thing I know about younger people is they're very adaptable. They're very, I'm not going to say it's not easy to change, but you know, even biologically, their brains are wild, wired for change. And that's one thing that I really noticed is they're a lot more resilient than I thought. And I know I was surprised with myself because after, you know, the initial shock is over, you know, it takes, I, I would say for myself, it took about two years to start to get to a place where I could start to say, okay, this is our new life now. Let's try and make the most out of it. But up until then, we were just in, you know, fight or flight all the time. I remember I used to wake up and this was like, I feel like a different person now. But when he first got injured, I used to wake up in the morning and just jump out of bed. And I remember looking at my watch and it was at hundred beats per minute for a resting heart rate. That's how much stress I was in. And this is coming from someone who I was a competitive athlete in high school. I'd always worked out. It just goes to show you how biologically stress can really, really hurt you. And so, I mean, I'm just, I'm glad to be younger in a way because I feel like it's that whole thing of like your life, your whole life is ahead of you. You have to make the most out of it. And I find that's a really common thing in the community. You don't, you don't have as many, you don't have a set schedule. You don't have as many things that are set in stone. So it kind of forces you to expand your vision of what your life would have been if that makes sense. You know, I forget what I'm going to say because I'm <laughs> an SCI survivor. Uh, how does it generally affect couples? You talked about the positive effects, but I'm sure couples have many problems with dealing with each other. Well, you know, one of the biggest things, I basically what you guys, to sort of echo everything that's been already said, I think one of the main adaptions or one of the main differences between being a younger couple and I suppose somebody who's been together for 40 years and you've, you've already have sort of a baseline foundation. So let's say if you wanted to have kids, you were already able to do that. And one of the biggest things in our community and one of the most talked about is around fertility. Um, the IVF journey, right? These couples are myself and Dan were 29 when he first became injured. We're 35 and almost 36 now. And, you know, there are so many couples that you're just beginning to make sense of the world of yourself and of your relationship. You know, a lot of, a lot of couples at that age in their twenties just got their careers or maybe put down a down payment on their home and they're ready to start a family. And then all of that takes 
a back seat because the main priority, especially for somebody who is a quadriplegic, is the stability of your everyday life. How do you set up your life with enough support physically, emotionally, medically, now financially, to be able to have a quality of life where you're not drowning in bills and medical bills and the lack of support. So I I would say one of the most talked about topics in our community around our age group would be around sex and fertility, you know, and depending on your spinal cord injury, whether you're quadriplegic or paraplegic, um, sexual health is a huge topic because that's also varies depending on your level of injury. So I would say that family life in terms of starting a family IVF journey is huge and sexual function. I would say those are definitely up there for our demographic and age group. I, I do know that you have that model of a penis and a stimulator of some sort. I don't remember, but I saw it on your website. You were demonstrating it. I don't know if fun is the right word, but you do approach it with fun. You approach sex as a fun thing, and you approach it in a light way, a matter-of-fact way, and that's what I really appreciate about it. And Janice and I have been married for 40 years, but when this happened, it's weird to say, we started a new honeymoon. It's like we fell in love with each other again, right? <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, you guys should give yourself a pat on the back for that. That is incredible. Um, I was going to add, this This brings up something really important. We have a lot of women who are dealing with, especially in the younger um, demographic of our group, we have a lot of women that are dealing with depression. Their spouse is trying to get themselves out of depression after, you know, a lot of extreme athletes in their group, a lot of people that got injured doing outdoor sports, you know, working at a physical job, you know, these men base their entire lives on their physicality. And so to have that pulled away and not be able to rely on that anymore, it brings a lot of men into a deep depression. And so I would say the younger men and younger women they don't really have as many tools as people in the older demographic do to handle their emotions. And so what that does is, you know, in our group specifically, when there's a lot of depression um, on, on the end of the, the injured party, the caregivers or the partners, there's a lot of codependency going on. And this is formed and it's, it's 100% understandable. I've worked through a lot of this myself. And I know Elena has as well, where you get to the place where you're so intertwined because you're caring for them at all hours of the day. You're around them a lot more than you used to. And so you start to think that their emotions are your responsibility. And so I think a lot of women go through that phase, especially the younger ones, where they have not grown up enough to realize that it's not your job to help these men navigate their emotions. It's their job. It's their own job. And so this is a huge, huge topic that comes up a lot is helping women navigate that and helping women realize that as much as they want to make things better for their partner, these depressive states are a necessary piece to healing from the injury. You have to kind of go through it, right? There's no pillow that you can, you know, fall on to make it easier for them. And, um, 
I definitely think like people your age have more tools. They know they've been through a lot together already. They see like, oh, this isn't really a healthy way to handle these emotions. Let's do something else. They're, they're mature. And so this can work too, you know, negatively for a lot, a lot of couples because they're still growing up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you, but our time is just about up. Mike, our Zoom time is running out. I know, I know. I should have set that up better. But thanks again. You've helped a lot of people. You've helped us. Even though I'm not allowed in, no men allowed, right? That's right. But she does tell me stuff every morning, even before I'm conscious enough to understand it. And ladies, I do have to thank you again. You came along just about the time I was screaming and having meltdowns. And the wags are a blessing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That is so kind of you to say that. And yeah. you know what? I, I don't think that we really acknowledge. It's really hard for us because we're just two girls living in Vancouver, just kind of living our lives, <laughs> trying to do the best we can. So thank you for saying that. They would have said more, but our Zoom time ran out. We're still trying to figure this stuff out. But we'll be back because I'm still rolling. I'm Mike Sugarman. And I'm Janice Wright. Thank you. And if you like us, I mean, you don't have to, you know, love us. But if you're interested, then please follow the show and leave us a review. Even if you don't like us, please do it anyway. Okay. You know the drill. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts or go to acast.com and type in I'm Still Rolling. That's A-C-A-S-T, acast.com. Okay, got to roll. See you next time. See you next time.